0: And turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 8. If you need a Bible, there's one right there in the pew rack in front of you. You can find the passage we'll be reading on page 1060, page 1060. We've been looking in these several weeks here at the beginning of the fall at these two chapters in John. John's gospel in which Jesus enters Jerusalem and is confronted by religious leaders. They demand to know who he is. And so Jesus makes clear. We saw at the end of what we read last week in John 8, verse 30, that even as Jesus spoke, many put their faith in him. And yet we see in what we continue reading today that this is a fickle faith. For it's a faith that believes partly, but a faith that is not willing to commit fully. And so what does true faith look like? Listen as I read John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you were determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, You do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Let me pray for us as we come to have God apply the reading of the word to our lives through the preaching of the word. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make your word known to us, that we would hear because you have given us the faith to believe. But Lord, more than that, make us people who would follow after you and apply your truth to our lives. Lord, we are resistant, we are hesitant, we are unwilling to listen. And so, Lord, break through our sin that we might obey. But Lord, let us see the saving grace of Jesus our Savior, our Rescuer, our Redeemer. And so, Father in heaven, for those that are here in the worship service that don't know Jesus as their King and Savior, I pray that as they hear your word proclaimed, you would give them faith to believe, that their questions would be answered, their doubts resolved. Lord, that they would respond today by faith. Lord, do your work in our hearts and lives. We come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Chess hustlers in downtown New York gather crowds as they beat opponents on chess boards in Washington Square Park. These chess hustlers are they're loud. They, they talk a big game, and they cheat a little. But the small amount of money that they often take from tourists is usually worth the entertainment that they provide. But when a chess grandmaster... Maurice Ashley, a kid who actually grew up in the neighborhood, learning to play on those same tables. When he steps into play, the game changes. The hustler talks a big game as as Maurice sits down. But as the grandmaster begins dismantling him, and it's one of those games that that's, each move is just a second with the clock moving very quickly, and, and, the, and the board begins to be decimated as this grandmaster takes pieces from the hustler. As he backs him into a corner, the, the hustler begins to trash talk a little less. And when Maurice catches him trying to remove multiple pieces with one move, he bumps the board and tries to, to take two knights at once. But Maurice, a master, knows where every piece is on the board and catches them and makes them put the pieces back. See, the hustler is realizing he's been trapped. And there's something delightful about watching a hustler be hustled. I mean, it's the reason why movies like The Sting work so well. You love watching the person who thinks they're on top get caught. At the end of the game, when Maurice introduces himself, there's a glimmer of recognition at the name, but when he reveals that he is a Grand Master Tournament winner, the hustler knows he's met a master. And John 7 and 8, these chapters we've been looking at, offer us something similar. The Religious leaders are playing on their home territory. They're here in the city of Jerusalem at the high feast, one of the great festivals of Israel. The people are, are coming and they have the, the opportunity to, to exalt themselves through their teaching, through their holiness. And so they confront Jesus, but every move they make is met with a grand countermove by Jesus the Master. They find themselves very quickly backed into a corner, and you'll see even next week they they begin to just throw out accusations at him. See, they feel like their holiness and their knowledge should be enough to earn them salvation. But Jesus dismantles their self-reliance. And so there's something enjoyable about hearing this kind of passage. Every time they, they, they try a different move, they throw out a different argument, Jesus crushes them. There's something really pleasurable about watching somebody else get crushed. Until we stop and think, which side of the table am I actually playing from? Because yes, Jesus is clearly the hero of this story, but how does my heart normally work? I'm normally the one making the arguments to get myself out of, trouble. I'm normally the one justifying myself. I'm normally the one taking pleasure in the things of this world. And so as we listen to this passage, as we see the moves that Jesus makes, I want you to to consider what he's teaching you. Not merely what he taught to the Pharisees then, but what he is teaching you. Maybe our own arrogance is being destroyed as we listen to Jesus. Because he stands to say to them, in verse 31, look look again at verse 31. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And notice he's speaking, verse 31 tells us, to the Jews who had believed him. We're no longer merely talking about the the, the antagonist, but Jesus is talking now even to those that claim to have put their trust in him. But this is a question that we've seen in the the gospel. If If you read through the gospel of John, you see it right from the very beginning, that as people put their trust in him, Jesus will not give himself fully to them, John 2 tells us, because they aren't really following Jesus. See, Jesus says to to say you believe me, to accept me as a good teacher, to to be willing to listen to me is not enough. If you hold to my teaching, that's what makes you a real disciple. If you hold to it, you cling to it, you abide in my teaching, you rest in what I am telling you, you obey all that I have commanded you, then you are a true disciple. One commentator says that, that this life of discipleship that Jesus is calling us to is a life lived under the saving sovereignty of God. That means you're giving everything to Jesus, acknowledging him to have absolute control. And that's why he tells us in verse 32, if you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. No, that's more than a slogan we could put on bumper stickers or on the top of of courtrooms. That is a, a, a statement about the claims Jesus is making. If you believe all that Jesus has said, if you believe that he is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the Rescuer, if you trust in this truth, if you trust in Jesus, then you will know the truth. And that truth will set you free. That's the claim Jesus is making. And so as we see them begin to argue with him, as they make their moves on the board, we see Jesus crush them, corner them, but he does it to us. And, and, and you can see this if, if you look in this passage, just as the way Jesus uses the conditional, the if phrase. If this were true about you, then this would be next. He uses it repeatedly, cornering them. Just, just, just follow along as we jump, just looking at, those, at just those phrases, just that, that conditional type argument. In verse 31. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. Verse 46, if I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He keeps, the, the clock is ticking, and the moves are coming at us quickly, but you're seeing pieces be removed from the board. They are being cornered. And so when they hear Jesus make this truth claim, that if you are my disciple, if you follow me, if you believe in me, then you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. So they answer him. Look at verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. And so, and so I think they, they understand the spiritual context. Because, yes, they didn't know this, this song that our choir sang this morning, but they know the, knew the songs of Israel. The, the key point, that we were in bondage, but from Egypt's yoke set free, that's the, the core of Israel's story. They were rescued by God from the, the Exodus. So they're not saying, they can't be saying, that we were never slaves. They are people that live under the despotic rule of Caesar with guards around them, keeping them in check. No, they understand that Jesus is making a spiritual argument about what it means to be a spiritual follower, a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And so he says, they argue, we are, we are the chosen people. We are the ones with spiritual freedom. And so how can you, Jesus, verse 33, how can you say that we shall be set free? And look at Jesus' response in verse 34. I tell you the truth. He's claiming an authority in that kind of statement. I tell you the truth. He's demanding their attention and allegiance. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You think you're free because you're Abraham's descendants. And yet, as sinners, you are slaves to sin, you are trapped by sin. Everyone. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And he clarifies the analogy then for us in verse 35, that a slave has no permanent place, could be bought or sold, sent in or out of the household, but a son, a son belongs forever. A son is an heir who has all of the rights. And so, verse 36, if the son sets you free, The Son of God come down from heaven. If the Son sets you free, even from your sin, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus is making a radical claim. He is the Son with the the right to God's kingdom. He is the one who speaks with authority. He is the one who sets free from sin. And so they think themselves free in their own goodness, their own righteousness, but he's showing them that sin... Sin makes us slaves. I know, I want you to imagine with me. Imagine you overdraw your bank account, but the bank doesn't notice. And then it happens again. And you get to spend the money, but it's not being counted against you. And then it happens again. What would you do? You're being given free money from the bank. You're not being charged anything. How would you respond? Would you stop doing it? Stop making those kinds of withdrawals or transfers. Would you go and tell the bank so that they could correct it? Or would you live the life you've always dreamed? Well, Luke Moore, a 24-year-old from Australia, and I apologize to Graham. He comes on a, on a day when we talk about Australia, and this, this won't go well. He joked with me. He heard, he heard the, the end of the sermon in the, in the, in the first service. But Luke Moore, a 24-year-old Australian man, had just that opportunity. He was transferring money, a a direct automatic withdrawal from his savings account, to pay off his mortgage. And so his mortgage payment was received, but no money was taken out of his savings account. So he thought, well, it'll just be a couple of days, the systems will catch up and it will show, and, and it happened again. So he thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe there is something going on. So he, he begins, after, after several months of money being transferred, his mortgage now being paid without it costing him anything, he decides, well, rather than just the $500 that I pay every two weeks, let's, let's increase the payment to $5,000. And he actually called the bank to, to check. Is what you see on your screen the same thing that I see on my screen? And they confirmed that it was. But he stopped there and then decided, well, let's, I mean, let's pay it off. And so the next payment was a payment for $50,000, and the bank still hasn't noticed. He basically has an unlimited free loan, money at his disposal. And so he decides, well, now I'm going to live it up. He leaves his small hometown. He moves to Surfer's Paradise, a stretch of beautiful beaches on, on Australia's Gold Coast. There among the high-rise hotels, living the life he always wanted, with now with fancy cars, with fast living, doing anything and everything he wants, spending money extravagantly because there is no limit. The bank just keeps giving him more. Absolute financial freedom. But he wakes up in the mornings, looks around, and wonders how he's gotten himself here. Because despite the extravagant wealth, he notices that, well, the people that are with me are people I've paid to be here with me. And then he begins to wonder. He, he starts to think at some point, this is going to come crashing down. At some point, somebody is going to notice he spent over $2 million. Now, to be fair, that's only one point six $1.6 million in U.S. dollars. He spent $1.6 million, but woke up every morning worried that this is the day that I will be caught. And when the police did come knocking on his parents' door, and he had filled their garage with extravagant and expensive artwork and gifts and other things that would give him pleasure and satisfaction in life, he fled the country. And he eventually returned to face trial. But, but it turns out he actually hadn't done anything illegal because it was a human error at the bank He was not involved technically in any form of of scamming them. He was able to walk away a free man without repaying any of the money. And yet, it has destroyed him. His mother, when she found out with the police at her door, just screamed, no, 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 he watched her health dramatically decline. His dad... Who worked at another bank in town was demoted, lost access to any in case, just in case, he might have been involved. See, Luke Moore is an unsympathetic character in his own story. And so you and I might look at him and say, ah, see, you got trapped by your own foolishness. I get it. Sin enslaves. You you spend all you want and it ends up coming back to cost you. It ends up coming back to bite you. And we might stand over here and think, well, I picked options, I picked the first options, I would have reported it to the bank and stopped spending the money. And we think, look how good I am. And I suspect that's how the people arguing with Jesus would have thought. When he says everyone who who sins is a slave to sin, they would have thought, well, that's a bad deal for those sinners. Not for the nice people like me, the people that are here in church, here on the high holy days, here to give praise to God see, what, what, what Luke was doing looked like absolute freedom. And he may have technically gotten away with it. And you and I might, might not have been that foolish. But isn't there part of you that just wishes, I mean, maybe it doesn't have to be $2 million, but just wishes? Wouldn't it be great? That monopoly bank error in your favor and you pay off your mortgage? Wouldn't that be a good thing? And, and maybe it doesn't even need to be an extravagant amount of money. Wouldn't you want that kind of freedom? And you might not have spent the money on the cars he spent it on. You might not have traveled to those places. But, but wouldn't it be nice to spend a few weeks on a beach? Because you and I would use money the same way. And now, now, some of you are actually thinking, no, 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 no. I... I'm not foolish enough to let money slip through my fingers and spend it on myself. Those those are fleeting joys. I wouldn't be that foolish. I would save it. I would, you know, maybe we would look at, at Luke and say, you should have at least buried some in the backyard so that you would have had some left over when this was all done. But you and I, we use money then perhaps not to make ourselves happy through pleasure, but to make ourselves secure and confident. But you realize if money is the most important thing, if the things of this world are most important, then then how much money would be enough? How much would keep you secure? Would you need an unlimited stream of money coming from the bank in order to make you happy? See, if money controls us, if the sin that leads us to spend extravagantly or to save miserly, in miserly ways, if that sin is most important to us, then we have become slaves to sin, because sin is a harsh taskmaster. And Jesus is looking at them and saying to them, look again at verse 37, you have no room for my word saying, verse 37, I know you're Abraham's descendants. Sure, you, you guys can run your, your Ancestry.com genealogies. I get it. You are children. You are, you are the physical descendants of Abraham. I get it. I understand the family tree. But you're trying to kill me because you have no room for my word. And when Jesus stands and confronts you in your sin, do you listen? When, you're, when you look at your life, is your life already so full? that you think, well, I mean, I could squeeze Jesus in. I probably got a couple hours on Sunday mornings, so we'll be okay. But are you willing to let Jesus be your master? Are you willing to follow his teaching, to abide by it, to live in it, to hold on to it, to be his true disciple, to let him have authority over all that you are? Or maybe you're here today and you actually think, you know, my view of the world, my understanding of, of the world. See, I'm not, I'm not dumb enough to do what Luke would have done and just spending extravagantly. I'm not arrogant enough to, to prop myself up like the Pharisees and say, look how great I am. You know what? I'm actually, I'm actually smarter than both of those groups. My view of the world doesn't, doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense for someone to say he came down from heaven and to take him seriously. I I'm a smart enough guy to know that that kind of thing doesn't happen. It actually can't happen. It's nonsense. But, but really is, is that view of the world, that view of the world which leaves no room for the claims of Jesus? Is that view of the world really all that smart? Or are you, by definition just saying, I, I won't consider anything that doesn't already make sense to me right now? Does your view of the world allow room for Jesus? Does your life allow authority? to Jesus. And so they respond to this teaching. Look at verse 39. They say, Abraham is our father because Jesus has just told them, I've come from the father's presence, but you are acting like your father. Well, they've they've already said it back in verse 33 that we are Abraham's descendants. So now they're making it more explicit. Jesus, Abraham is our father, but he begins to corner them. Yes, he's willing to acknowledge, we saw, that they are Abraham's physical descendants. But, but look what he says in verse 39. If they were really Abraham's spiritual descendants, if they were really Abraham's moral descendants, if they really believed in the God of Abraham. Look at verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. And yet, what are they doing? They are trying to kill Jesus. They hear Jesus speak. They hear the commands of God, and they want to do away with Jesus. But what did Abraham do? When God called him to to go to the promised land, Abraham obeyed. When God asked him to sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise, Abraham obeyed. See, to follow after Abraham, to be his children, his spiritual descendants, means to obey the way Abraham obeyed. And Jesus tells them, but you're doing the things your own father did does he's not willing to let them claim Abraham as their spiritual father and so in verse 41 they now they're now they're starting to get angry we are not illegitimate children and here there might be some some hint of irony because they might be thinking of Jesus's own birth I mean you know the story she claims it was an angel she wasn't even married Can you really believe Mary's story? We are not illegitimate children. Now, perhaps that's not what they were saying. Certainly that is what we understand, having read it through the centuries, having read all four of the Gospels and knowing the clear claim of of Jesus' virgin birth. But they are making a pretty powerful point. They are saying, "No, no, 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 Jesus, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God Himself. So you know, they're saying, okay, let's, let's stop arguing about Abraham. Let's go right back to the source. Let's go to the God of Abraham. God is our father. But Jesus will not allow them any quarter. He keeps moving the pieces. He is cornering them. And so he says in verse 32, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God. I'm right here now. I didn't come on my own. God sent me. If you were really God's children, if you were really sons of God, then you would believe the son who stands in front of you today. Is God your father? And, and, and maybe I, I want to speak today to, to those of you that are students, kids that were maybe dragged here by mom or dad. And maybe you, were, maybe you came compliantly, or maybe there was a big argument and you're still here. Or maybe you've given up arguing because it doesn't seem to get you anywhere and you've been dragged along. See, the, this question about the, the, the Jewish leaders standing and saying, no, 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 look at my history. I, I deserve God's favor. And maybe you've been, you've been dragged here and you would just say, come on, I'm here every week, I've got the perfect Sunday school attendance, I, I know all of the answers. I could, I could probably answer the next question you're going to ask without you even answering it. The answer, Kevin, is Jesus. We got it. And yet, there's a danger in presuming. Presuming upon your church attendance, presuming upon your parents' pedigree, presuming upon what, whatever you think you've done that's good. No, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's casting all of that aside and saying, put your trust in me. Stop trusting in yourself. And, and you as adults in the room realize... This is a lesson not only our children need to hear. Jesus is saying, if God were your father, you would love me. But they won't listen, not because Jesus isn't speaking clearly, but because they don't have the faith to believe. Verse 43, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Jesus is speaking with clarity, but they will not accept it. They will not believe it. They will not humble themselves. Why? Because they are doing exactly what their father, who they claim was Abraham. But who's the father that they're really following spiritually and morally? I mean, Jesus is no longer playing nice here. You belong, verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil. You belong to your father, the devil. I mean, there is no middle ground of, of well so jesus it's either you that i follow or it's the devil I, i'll pick a third option i'll just stay in charge right isn't that what you and i want to do we would not be fooling us i'm not going to sign on to the devil's team I mean, what kind of person do you think i am but that's what jesus is telling him if you have not if you will not put your trust in me if you will not listen to the truth if you will not find freedom and forgiveness in jesus then you are following Your father, the devil. And so you do the things your father desires because he was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar from the beginning. Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan and so so sin and death entered the world through the deceit of the devil. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who can set us free. They won't believe him, verse 45, because he tells the truth. They want to live in the lies. You and I sometimes are comfortable without the truth. You know, I, I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. Like, I don't, don't, don't tell me, because you and I are comfortable living as if we're really in charge. And then Jesus makes this astounding claim. Look at verse 46. He challenges them. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Now, either he's Pretty confident in his own spiritual goodness, or he has just given away the game. Because if I were to make that kind of claim, could any of you prove me guilty of sin? I, some of you would be jumping up and down. Oh, oh I've got a good one. And yes, the, my, my family's not here in this service, but, but let's, let's say you are all too polite to do it. Surely we would just have to ask one of them. See, I wouldn't be dumb enough. To say, does anybody here, have you ever known me to do anything wrong? To stand up and say, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I mean, any sin, at all, ever, in any time that you've known me. Any one of you, bring a charge and prove it. See, Jesus stands to free us because he is the one who stands in perfect holiness. Who would dare ask such a question except the one who knows there is no sin in him jesus is the son who sets us free from our sins he is the one who frees us by his own willingness to be shackled as a condemned criminal to give his life for us. Jesus is our liberator, our redeemer, the one who frees us from slavery to sin. Jesus is the rescuer who gave his life to pay for our sins. When the chess hustler lost to the grandmaster, when he realized it was over, there were still pieces on the board, but he conceded. He laid down his own king and stood up from the table. But you see, Jesus has them at just that point. But what does Jesus do? In this game, the king lays down his own life for sinners. See, this is the glory of the gospel. This is why there is freedom here. He is not a master who demands that we pay him back, he is a master who has given his life for us. He doesn't, doesn't demand that you and I get ourselves clean and, and spotless before coming to him. No, he, he demands that we admit our failures and ask for forgiveness. He doesn't expect us to have found the truth on our own. He expects us to hear the truth that he speaks and respond to him. The king lays down his life. And so the game ends with the king laying on the board. Your king, Jesus, who gave his life to set you free. Free. Let me pray as we come to the table of the Lord. Father, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ, that he, in exposing our sin, doesn't merely leave us condemned in sin, but sets us free from the penalty of sin. Lord, we rejoice in the forgiveness that we find when we confess our sins to Jesus. And so, Lord, for those of us that that call ourselves disciples, followers of Jesus, set us free from the power of sin that entangles us. Lord, let us live lives of gospel obedience, loving Jesus because of the grace that has been poured out on us. Lord, for those that are here that doubt the truthfulness of the claims that are made today, Lord, I pray that you would give them faith to believe, that you would grant them spiritual understanding, that they would be able to respond in the hope of the gospel and find forgiveness. And Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that you would strengthen us, as we remember the death of our savior as we are promised his return as we rejoice in the hope of his resurrection as we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ amen jesus died